I'm going to take a bit of a pause from reading Kierkegaard's Fear and Trembling, although we might get to it this time, um, if we have time. But I think that maybe it is important to investigate a little bit of sort of exegesis on the Hebrew story of Abraham and Isaac. Um, I mean, it would be interesting to do it from sort of Jewish, Christian, and Islamic or yeah, Muslim um, understanding. But I have found on Torah.com an article that looks really interesting. It is by, let's see, um, let me get her bio up. Um, Dr. Devorah Schoenfeld. So she is a, an associate professor of theology at Loyola University, Chicago. She teaches Judaism, Bible, and Jewish-Christian relations. Her PhD is from the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley in 2007, and uh, she has a book out called Isaac on Jewish and Christian Authors, Polemic and Exegesis in Rashi and the Glossa Ordinaria. So that sounds really interesting. Um, so I wanted to read through with all of you this uh, article and uh, my pronunciation of Hebrew words is not going to be good. Um, Akeda, maybe? How Jews and Christians explained Abraham's faith. So it starts out, she talks that she talks about how it's the story starts out with a contradiction, which I guess Kierkegaard maybe doesn't articulate as such, but maybe he does. <laughs> I mean, it just I don't know. When I was reading this article, it seemed like helpful to me. So maybe I just didn't get that gist in Kierkegaard so far. All right, so I'm gonna start this. I don't know if I'm gonna have any comments, but I think it might or might not be helpful. I mean, one of the issues, one of maybe the problems with reading Fear and Trembling is that readers like myself are focusing too much on the story and not enough on how what Kierkegaard is getting from the story, how he's using the story. Um, because one question is, you know, I mean, how essential is the story to what he's doing? It could be argued maybe that he could use another sort of material basis, but, you know, but he didn't. So, okay. Um, in the story of the banishment of Ishmael, God tells Abraham that his son Isaac will be the progenitor of his future line, Genesis 21. But in the Ekedah, I'm just going to say that, Genesis 22, 2, God asks Abraham, God asks Abraham for it, as, to sacrifice Isaac. At the end of the story, there is another internal contradiction in the divine command when God tells Abraham not to kill his son. So, so yeah, okay, so basically God says your son will have this kind of future, and then God says 
you know, or asks, requests Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. And then, um, you know, oh, just kidding, don't. So, so it kind of goes back and forth. And I guess this is articulated as a contradictory command. So going back to Dr. Schofield's article, the challenge of contradiction posed by this text occurs on two levels. God's apparent self-contradiction presents a theological problem. Okay, this is good. I like that it's recognized as a problem because I think it's a problem. Abraham's lack of comfort. And number two, Abraham's lack of confrontation with God or not calling out this contradiction is also problematic. Yes. Okay. Thank you. This is what, is this not what I was saying that I wanted to happen? This would be my midrash or my sort of interpretation, my revisioning of this. Abraham should have called out God, which would have indicated his intimate relationship and total faith of God. So not just saying, okay, I'll like do what you say, but you know, I'm going to stress out about it, but I'm hoping, you know, hoping to me isn't necessarily like steadfast faith. So I think, um, you know, they should have just like Abraham should have been like, better bros with God and called him out like right from the beginning and not taking him seriously um so it just and it looks like that, that that he didn't as problematic so there you go all right I'm I'm just a little too happy about that <laughs> that agreement um because what do I know so all right um this next section is Jewish interpretations um interpreting God's word midrashically. So some midrashim address these problems. For instance, the mid-first millennium current era compilation deals with the seeming contradiction in divine commands by creating an imagined conversation between God and Abraham. And so if you, if you don't know what a midrash is, it's basically um, an accepted and traditional way of kind of keeping the Hebrew stories alive by continually like turning them over and looking at different angles, maybe even retelling it and giving it what would be considered new content for its metaphorical truths. Um, so, so that's why in sort of exegesis, we're not just looking at... Midrashes are kind of exegesis and interpretations of the Hebrew Bible. So, um, the Hebrew scriptures, there you go. So, and I am skipping a word. Um, if you look at this, it's Genesis Rabba? Rabba? Genesis Rabba? I don't know. Sometimes I just want to skip words that I don't know how to pronounce. Okay, so this is the Midrash um, from the mid-first millennium. Now I know, Rabbi Abba said, Abraham said to him, God, I will set my words before you. Yesterday you said to me, and Isaac will be called your seed. Then he went back and said, take your son. Now you say to me, do not send forth your hand against the boy. God, so so Abraham's calling him out. Um, God, the holy... So, so that idea of what we should, what, what should have been done, <laughs> or what perhaps, yeah, I don't even know. Yeah, what should have been done has been around a while. 
God, the Holy Blessed One, said to him, I will not profane my covenant and the utterance of my lips will not change. When I said to you, take, the utterance of my lips will not change. I did not say slaughter him, but rather bring him up. You brought him up, now bring him down. All right, I love the attitude in this, or maybe that's what I'm projecting. This conversation turns Abraham into a rabbinic interlocutor. Am I saying that right? I always question myself with that word. I need the British lady on the Oxford English Dictionary app to, to tell me how to say it. Pointing out the contra- pointing out contradictions and asking God about them, God, through the words of Psalm 89:35, affirms that despite appearances, God's words never contradict. So it was just misinterpreted. Although some people may understand God's words and think so, God's instruction in Genesis 22:2 means only bring him up the mountain or bring him up on the altar. I mean, we might ask why though, but you know, what does it really solve? Like, why would God ask that? Um, But we'll see if this article addresses that. A literal interpreter would have been forced to concede that the noun used always refers to a burnt offering, but the Midrash is not so constrained. Once Abraham brought his son up, he may bring him down again unharmed. Okay, so it's not you know the actual words I guess of the text Um, but when we midrash them we imagine and still it doesn't make sense like well it's not that it does it well yeah it doesn't make sense because there's no reason given for why would why would God even want to bring him up and bring him down okay so Abraham Abraham Ben Ezra uh, 1089 through 1167, a famous medieval exponent of Peshat explicitly rejects the Midrash and other various attempts to reconcile the contradiction. He explains, and these great scholars require these interpretations because they said it is not possible for God to command something and then say not do it. But they did not note that the firstborn were replaced by the the Levites after a year. Since the text says at the start, and God tested Abraham, it removes any doubt. God tested him in order for him to receive a reward. And so, you know, I think that is the, in many, like, let's just say, here's, because this is my experience, Protestant churches, Christian churches, um, we haven't gotten to the Christian interpretations yet. I think that's basically it. And I think that's Kierkegaard's. Like, I don't think he's revising or doing anything new with that sort of interpretation. He's saying that Abraham had such a faith. So this is what, this is what Kierkegaard, I think, is saying. That Abraham's faith is a model because he passionately accepts what God, what he thinks God is asking him to do or telling him to do. And then he's still joyful when God says, just kidding, don't do it, right? Like he doesn't lose. And that's why, that's why the first, at least three, but I think all four of the interpretations or the readings by Johannes de Silencio are problematic in the beginning because Abraham doesn't 
like he's not reading him as a you, Johannes de Silencio needs to get to the point where he's completely accepting that Abraham was was you know on board regardless you can yo-yo Abraham back and forth and he is going to stand be standing by God and that's kind of the like I guess <laughs> ride or die uh, perspective that Abraham that that Kierkegaard admires you know because again like he wants people to be passionate and not justify things but then also the and then this is then the critique and what I think you know um, scholars who are looking at Kierkegaard's book resist because scholars usually say that this is not a promotion of irrationality, irrational faith, or extreme zealous faith. It's not that. So I don't know though. I like I like more of a defense of that than you know to be like if you if you know maybe you have to read those scholars. Um, because it has to be convincing if it's not that. Because it does seem like that at the surface, right? But of course, we don't want it to be that because it's philosophy and, you know, we have to give Kierkegaard all the credit. So we don't want to be held back by um, just our resistance to the Abrahamic story on the first hand and then what it seems like Kierkegaard is is doing. I have to say that when I did read this, and we'll see the first time, and was in my reading group and kind of influenced by certain people in that reading group, their protestations and horror, after that kind of got into me, I guess, um, I couldn't help feel like maybe I was being gaslit almost when I was reading this, reading Fear and Trembling, um, because it's kind of like Kierkegaard, through his pseudonym, like through his, you know, character that is supposed to be the author of this, this book, um, is trying to poke and prod the reader not through logic, but through emotional response to be triggered. I don't know, but that's probably not it at all. <laughs> so let's keep reading. Okay, so Ben Ezra believes that God's word sometimes changes. For example, Numbers 3 states that the firstborn originally had a priestly role before they were replaced by the Levites. Likewise, God first tells Abraham to sacrifice Isaac and then tells him not to. So for Ben Ezra, you know, as always, feel free to correct my pronunciation of, of everything I do incorrectly. Um, you know, I'll figure it out eventually, but I appreciate corrections. 
then the faithful person may believe that God's mind will sometimes change. Okay, so... So this... This medieval... writer is... is not saying, oh no, God didn't change his mind. God absolutely did. But, so that's not a contradiction. He just changed his mind. You can change your mind. Okay, I mean, that's that's it, that's it, perspective. Um, all right, so then we have another prominent commentator, um, medieval commentator, Rashbaum, Abraham's interpretive mistake. So again, I think we're back to Abraham misunderstood. Or was the first one we misunderstood? No, Abraham. Well, yeah, okay, Abraham didn't understand in the beginning, but God cleared it up. Okay, so here's, uh, here's the other one. Here's another one, uh, another Midrash. And it came to pass after these events, every place where it says, I hope that, yeah, I'm sure that my microphone is, just seems weird, okay. And it came to pass after after these events, every place where it says after these events, oh, okay, so it's just, so the scriptures say, and it came to pass after these events, and then here's the commentary. Every place where it says after these events, the text is connected to the preceding section. So to here after these events refers to the previous section where Abraham made a covenant with the king of the Philistines on behalf of himself and his grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And he gave him the seven ewes. God was angry about this for the land of the Philistines was within the borders of Israel and God had commanded regarding them, do not let anyone live. Therefore, and God tested Abraham, that is to say, you were boastful with the son that I gave you to establish a covenant between your children and their children. Now go and offer him as a burnt offering and we will see what good the covenant you made was. I mean, that sounds a little resentful, you know, but all right. I mean, you know, God sounds like annoyed. You were boastful, so I mean... I don't want God to be like that, right? But all right. Rashbam reads, and it came to pass at this time, which might be seen as a simple transition between units, as indicating a causal relationship between the story of the binding of Isaac and the narrated narrative that preceded it, which described a treaty that Abraham made with Avimelech. In making this treaty, Abraham was arrogant to think that he could make a covenant with Avimelech's people on behalf of his descendants when God actually plans to have Abraham's descendants annihilate them in the future. Thus, Abraham here is punished for misreading God's intention and granting him land and progeny. To Rashbaum, then, the work of being a faithful reader of divine command is difficult and challenging, so challenging that even Abraham can get it wrong. I mean, but doesn't that sound like, uh, I'm just going to have to say it. Um, doesn't that sound like an, uh, an unhealthy interpretation of God? You know, I mean, you, you wouldn't think that a loving person that you were in a relationship would try to, you know, 
just be so intensely revengeful and punish us for making a mistake, even if we were being arrogant. Like, oh, you made a pact, you made an alliance with someone, and now I'm just gonna tell you to murder your son then. So take that. I mean, right? Like, can we not call this out? But okay. So I, I shouldn't post this at all. This is this is not good. This is see, and this is why I've moved to philosophy. <laughs> um, even having a PhD in religion. Because I just I don't know. Maybe I can't be mature about it. Okay, so Radak Abraham as example to the nations for another scholar. 1160 to 1235, Abraham, far from being mistaken, serves as an example of faith. All right, so let's see if this is like Kierkegaard. But the truth is that this test was in order, so this is the scripture, to show the nations of the world Abraham's complete love of God. So we love God so much, we'll do anything that he says. Which I don't, I don't know. I guess that's that's great, but I don't also, th I also don't think that like ride or die relationships, friendships, whatever is, is also, is also healthy. <laughs> like, you know, it's kind of like, do you really want your friends to support you? Even if you're wrong, do you, do you really want your friends to like hate everyone you hate just because they're supposed to be loyal to you? Like that, I don't know. doesn't sound great. Okay, here's the Midrash. And this was not done for those generations, but rather for the later generations that believe in the Torah that Moses, peace be upon him, wrote by God's word and in its stories so that they would know how far Abraham's love of God extended and would learn from it to love God with their whole hearts and their, own, their whole souls. Radak explains that the entire... Ikeda was designed to show future generations, I just want to apologize, a model of faithfulness, part of which is that Abraham does not point out contradictions in God's command, but simply trusts and obeys. Okay, sorry. I'm just, I'm just so emotional. Okay, I need, I need to read that again. Um, was designed to show future generations a model of faithfulness, part of which is that Abraham does not point out contradictions in God's command, but simply trusts and obeys. So, so God, so, okay, so Abraham might want to say, hey, hey, yo, like that doesn't, doesn't sound like you're being consistent. Let's talk about this. But the fact that Abraham does not even approach God with that sort of dialogue um, just trusts and obeys. See, this is why I like Job. This is why I really like Job because all of his friends were telling Job in his all of his suffering with all of his skin boils, etc., that you know, Job shouldn't who is Job to like talk back at God because when he's suffering, Job does talk to God or tries to. Um, you know, he says, oh, wasn't I a good person? Like, why are you doing this to me? If you're testing me, this has gone beyond what I can handle and what is necessary. I don't get it. And his friends were all 
you know, kind of giving him toxic positivity, you know, just, just be like, God won't do anything that you can't handle. Like maybe you deserve this. Maybe, you know, all of these really toxic things. Am I just too, too much of a modern reader? Um, can I not teach fear and trembling in, in class? I don't know. We're working through it. I'm sticking with it. Um, we're gonna work it out. Dr. Amber Bowen is gonna help me with it and we're gonna get past our just sort of horror at it, how this story has been read and what it's supposed to endorse. Because I'm a big proponent of if we are going to imagine a God, then we should imagine that God is being like a healthy entity, a healthy being, right? We shouldn't take the worst, like most primitive characteristics of the human species and of the world and put them into a supernatural deity. I would think, I don't know, I, I would want someone who's actually an example, but I am just going to offend a lot of people and I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. But I also, you know, how can I grow if I'm not honest at this point, right? So I'm not going to pretend. Okay. Um, let's see. So he did not ask and he did not argue. Did you not say to me for through Isaac, your seed will be called? Radak goes on to note the success of Abraham as an example of faith. Today, some years after the worship of idols and statues has been abolished, most of the world believes in the Torah of Moses, our teacher, and in its stories. They only disagree with us about the commandments in that they say that they were given to us by way of parable. They only disagree with us about the Okay, so are we going to read these stories literally or are they metaphors for something else? So Abraham's display of love expressed by not pointing out contradictions in the divine word was for the benefit of everyone in the world, both Jews and Christians. So I don't know. I mean, maybe because I think about like how abusive this would be in a in a parent child relationship you know the parent saying you better not oppose me don't even question me if you love me you'll just do what I say without even asking I mean I don't know like I don't know if that's an example for um anyone okay so now we're going to Christian interpretations Christian responses differed from those of Jews for two reasons. Within Christianity, the Ekedah, sorry, was seen as prefiguring the death and resurrection of Jesus. So Isaac, in a sense, could die. Okay, and a particular New Testament text that pointed toward a particular line of interpretation, resurrection became foundational. Okay, that's interesting. I mean, I guess that makes sense because then the Christians want to find like sort of project a symbol of Jesus in all of the Hebrew scriptures 
mean, it doesn't necessarily sound like something that Christians should do, right? Because it's like, I don't know. I feel like it's kind of insulting to Judaism. But um, but yeah, I guess I guess that would happen. So, okay, so Hebrews, the book of Hebrews. Abraham's faith and resurrection. And this is true because when I was in Bible quiz when I was a kid, I memorized some scriptures in in Hebrews. I think like Hebrews, yeah, 11. Okay, so the epistle to the Hebrews, a New Testament book of unknown authorship, cites Abraham's offering of Isaac as an example of faith. By faith, Abraham, when put to the test, offered up Isaac. And this is, this is what it is. I mean, in Kierkegaard's time, was this story seen as so divisive? Because, because that's the, I think that's the problem. Maybe it wasn't a problem in Kierkegaard's time, right? No one was going to find it hard to hear what Kierkegaard was trying to say and to understand what he was trying to do because the story was not as triggering as it might be to a reader now. Right? So, so, so we, we have to fight through <laughs> what triggers us. Okay, I'll stop now. By faith, Abraham, when put to the test, offered up Isaac. He who had received the promises were ready to offer up his only son, of whom he had been told. It is through Isaac that descendants shall be named for you. He considered the fact that God is even able to raise someone from the dead, and figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So this is so basically Hebrews 11:17 through 19 says in the Christian scriptures that the Greek scriptures that you know even if so Abraham was willing Abraham was ready to actually sacrifice his son that's the Christian interpretation because he believed in resurrection or that God was capable of anything and that included resurrection and then also you know are Christians outraged by the crucifixion of Jesus no, um, not usually. Usually that's seen in the Christian faith as eliciting emotions of gratitude and just like tearful, yeah, tearful gratitude, right? Because that, you know, that's why Christians wear crosses around their necks and on their t-shirts from Mardell's. Okay, so according to this passage, Abraham reconciled the ideas that he would be the father of many nations, even though he must kill Isaac, by having faith in resurrection. On the basis of his faith, Abraham would sacrifice Isaac and still believe that he would be resurrected and become the father of Abraham's descendants. All right, so here is um, a a selection from one of the most influential Christian commentaries of the High Middle Ages. It is the Glossa Ordinaria, compiled by Gilbert of Uxier, maybe? In the 12th century, it was more widely copied than any other book. That's impressive. It was a standard text for Bible study for at least two centuries after its composition, and it remained in use through Reformation. Wow. Okay, 
well. One of the authors quoted in the gloss, Alcuin of York, sees 735 to 804, sees Abraham's confidence and faith as stemming from his ability to draw correct theological conclusions from an apparent contradiction in God's word. So here's the selection, the boy and I. He was willing to sacrifice his son with an undoubting soul, praiseworthy in the constancy of offering and in his trust in resurrection. For he knew with greatest certainty that God could not fail. And although the boy might be sacrificed, God's saving promise would yet endure. Once the apostle, so this is Hebrews 11 again, Abraham did not hesitate in his faith when offering his only son in whom he received the promise, believing that God was able to revive him even from death. So Alcuin understands, I'm sorry for the pronunciation, uh, Abraham to have derived the doctrine of resurrection from the contradiction between God's promise that Isaac will be his heir and the command to sacrifice him. The interlinear gloss also includes the approach of Isidore of Seville, 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 maybe? Five sixty to six thirty-six. Who understands the story of Abraham as a sign of what will happen in the future, namely that God will offer His own Son Jesus as a sacrifice. Thus, in interpreting God's command to Abraham to take His only begotten Son, the gloss quotes John three sixteen. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Abraham is keenly aware that the command to sacrifice Isaac contradicts God's previous promise. Um, And again, here's the um, high Middle Ages text. By the remainder, or no, sorry, by the reminder of love and the mention of the name, the test is piled high and fatherly emotion is moved by the memory of the promise because it was said that in Isaac, your seed will be called. Genesis 21, Romans 11. So if he would be killed, all the hope of the promise would be frustrated. The gloss solves the problem in its interpretation of the command to go to the land of vision. Where it will be revealed to you what I will foretell with this sacrifice. For the interlinear gloss, Abraham will only understand God's intention on the mountain when God reveals that the sacrifice was not meant to be carried out, in fact, but only as a sign for the future of what God will do with his own son. Thus, despite the possibility of resurrection, Abraham has no need to sacrifice Isaac since the true sacrifice will be the sacrifice of Christ that was to come. The purpose of Abraham's act was simply to foretell this sacrifice. So now we have something from Martin Luther, belief in resurrection and acceptance of contradiction. Possibly the most famous interpreter of the literal sense among either Jews or Christians was Martin Luther, 1483 to 1546. One of his guiding principles was sola scriptura or scripture alone, namely that no text outside of the Bible, which for him of course included the New Testament, could be used to interpret the Bible. In particular, he meant to exclude by this body of patristic and medieval interpretation that had become central to medieval Christian exegesis and which, like Midrash, was very effective in resolving contradictions. As a literal interpreter, Luther shared the dilemma of the Jewish Peshat commenters, Pesha? Pesha, do you, do you pronounce the T? Do you accept contradictions or do you find some other way to reconcile them? 
Luther's lengthy commentary on the near sacrifice of Isaac extends for over 90 pages in translation. In this commentary, he attempts to explain the technical details of the story, resolve contradictions, show how Abraham can function as an example of faith, and he uses the Abraham story to discuss what faith means for him. To Luther, the contradiction in God's words to Abraham is the essence of Abraham's test. He writes, I have stated what Abraham's trial was, namely the contradiction of the promise. Human reason would simply conclude either that the promise is lying or that the command is not God's but the devil's. For there is a plain contradiction. If Isaac must be killed, the promise is void. But if the promise is sure, it is impossible that this is a command of God. The contradiction in God's word has, for Luther, disturbing theological implications. Quote, this trial cannot be overcome and is too far and is far too great to be understood by us, for there is a contradiction with which God contradicts himself. It is impossible for flesh to understand this, for it inevitably concludes either that God is lying and is blasphemy, or that God hates me, and this leads to despair. End quote. Either God's word is internally self-contradictory, or God is capricious and senselessly cruel. I did once have a student in Intro to Philosophy who was going to do her um, her philosophical essay. I, I gave them kind of an option. They could do a, a sort of a biography over a philosopher, or they could come up with a philosophical question that they, um, you know, wanted, they, they tried to explore. Um, so it was going to, she was going to, um, ask if God was a masochist. Okay. So both of these are for Luther untenable positions. So Luther does not agree that God's word is internally self-contradictory and he does not agree that God is capricious and senselessly cruel. The only possible way for Abraham to resolve this contradiction for Luther is to derive it from the concept of resurrection. So, quote, even though there is a clear contradiction here, for there is nothing between death and life, Abraham nevertheless does not turn away from the promise, but believes that his son will have descendants even if he dies. Thus, Abraham relies on the promise and attributes to the divine majesty this power that he will restore his dead son to life. For just as he saw that Isaac was born of a worn-out womb and a sterile mother, so he believed that he was to be raised after having been buried and reduced to ashes, in order that he might have descendants, as the epistle to the Hebrews, Hebrews 11, 19 states, God is able to give life even to the dead. Abraham is here a model interpreter of the Bible because he fully accepts both parts of the contradiction. I just have to say that this article is amazing like I I almost want to buy the book okay so thank you Dr. Deborah um because he fully accepts both parts of the contradiction he is able to on his own come up with a concept of resurrection which would later be stated in the epistle to the Hebrews Abraham also reaches his interpretation, teaches his interpretation to his son Isaac, in a reconstructed dialogue reminiscent of Midrash, as Luther writes, Now that the altar was built, the knife ready, and the fire kindled, some conversation between the father and son must have occurred, a conversation through which Isaac was appraised of the will and command of God. Which is interesting, because in Kierkegaard, we had that first story 
of Abraham deciding to tell his son that, you know, I'm a monster. This is what I'm doing. God would never command this. God would never ask this. So it's kind of like he was trying to protect God. Um, so I guess Luther creates a different kind of conversation. So the father said, you, my dearly beloved son, whom God has given me, have been destined for the burnt offering. Then the son was undoubtedly struck with amazement and in turn reminded his father of the promise. Consider, father, that I am the offspring to whom descendants, kings, peoples, etc. have been promised. God gave me to my mother Sarah through a great miracle. How then will it be possible for the promise to be fulfilled if I am killed? Nevertheless, let us first confer about this matter and talk it over. All of this should have been recorded here. I do not know why Moses omitted it, but I have no doubt that the father's command to the son was extraordinary, and I think its main topic was the command of God in the resurrection of the dead. He probably said, God has given a command, therefore we must obey him, and since he is almighty, he can keep his promise even when you are dead and have been reduced to ashes. Thus it was the father's address to his son which reconciled these two contradictory propositions. Isaac will be the seed and father of kings and peoples. Isaac will die and will not be the father of peoples. Luther here presents Abraham as an interpreter of God's word based on a belief that God cannot actually be contradicting his promise. Abraham is able to sacrifice Isaac since he knows that his son will have descendants even after a thousand years. Abraham's faith was reflected in his ability to reconcile contradictory divine commands and to derive from them the concept of the resurrection and even to communicate this doctrine to his son. Like his Christian um, predecessors, Luther ultimately interprets Genesis 21 through 22 through the lens of the New Testament, especially Hebrews 11. And like Radak, he Radak, he allocates Abraham's faith and his acceptance of divine contradiction. This unwitting agreement with a Jewish source is notable, given that authors, that given that Luther's work, sorry, contains lengthy and harsh anti-Jewish polemic. Okay, and so there's just a very, very short part that we have left, which is good because we are almost ending our time. So I guess I will save the rest of a tribute to Abraham and then start on a preliminary outpouring from the heart in the next video. So I just have a paragraph more and I think this is like Dr. Devorah's, you know, her thoughts. This is like her conclusion from all this that she has pointed out, which is, a beautiful gathering of sources. Medieval Jewish and Christian interpreters of the Hebrew Bible, despite their different canons and theological assumptions, often asked similar questions and sometimes came to similar conclusions. Jewish commentators offered many different answers as such, or such as, God only said to bring him up, God does contradict himself at times, um, this was a punishment for making a treaty with Avimelech, or that it was all just to show future generations a true model of faithfulness. Christian interpreters also offered a range of answers, but all of them following the basic approach outlined in Hebrews, that the answer to the contradiction was that Abraham assumed God would resurrect Isaac. Although it would seem such an avenue would be closed to Jewish interpreters as too Christological in nature, and for the most part it was, the idea that Isaac was resurrected actually appears in some Jewish sources, such as the 8th century Midrashic work, Pir 
Pirkei, Pirkei de Rabbi Eliezer, chapter 31. Rabbi Judah says, Once the sword reached his throat, Isaac's soul left his body. Once God slash the angel made his voice heard between the two cherubs and said, Do not lift your hand against the boy. His soul returned to his body. Abraham untied him and stood on, and he stood on his feet. Isaac thus came to see or know that resurrection is a Torah principle, that all of the dead are destined to rise. At that moment, Isaac opened his mouth and said, Blessed are you, O God, who resurrects the dead. Okay, that wasn't a, a conclusion. Dr. DeVora, how should we read this then? <laughs> what are, what's your opinion? Okay, she doesn't tell us we have to read the book. All right. I wonder what the reviews say on um, Amazon. Let me try to look this up. her name correctly okay yes I did spell it correctly and there's no reviews <laughs> okay there are no customer reviews goodreads I need some direction even though maybe it doesn't matter maybe I shouldn't be looking up exegesis maybe I shouldn't be going down that rabbit hole Goodreads will have some reviews for me. No, no reviews. Okay, this book has zero ratings and zero reviews. Okay, well, that's just the universe asking me to buy it and read it for myself and and be a review for others. <laughs> okay, so I mean, at any rate, I think it's, it is really, it's reassuring to my curiosity to see this range of interpretations and understandings, um, both Jewish and Christian, you know, all throughout, you know, the, the great span of time, um, you know, after this was, the story was told and circulated and people started to give commentary that we still have today. So that's really helpful. Um, yeah, so I, I don't know. I think we can get into a little bit of it. Okay, so we left off um, with the tribute to Abraham you know, with sort of the voice that would protest um, on page 16. So the Lord was only mocking Abraham. Um, and then questions, you know, is there no compassion for this venerable old man? None for the innocent child. Um, let's see. Okay, and so it starts with, so it will, it continues with, I don't know, sort of the desirable reading, I guess, of Abraham for somebody, you know. But Abraham believed and believed for this life. To be sure, had his faith been only for a future life, he could indeed more easily have cast everything away in order to hurry out of the world to which he did not belong. 
But Abraham's faith was not like that, if there be such a faith, for that is not really faith, but only the remotest possibility of faith, which faintly spies its object on the edge of the horizon, yet is separated from it by a yawning abyss within which despair plays its tricks. But Abraham believed precisely for this life that he would grow old in the land, honored by his people, blessed by posterity, forever remembered in Isaac, his dearest one in life, whom he embraced with a love for which it would be only a poor expression to say that he faithfully fulfilled a father's duty to love the son, as indeed it goes in the summons, the son whom you love. Jacob had 12 sons, one of whom he loved. Abraham only had one son whom he loved. But Abraham believed and did not doubt. He believed the preposterous. If Abraham had doubted, then he would have done something different, something great and glorious. For how could Abraham do anything else but what is great and glorious? He would have set out from Mount Moriah. He would have chopped the firewood, lit the fire, drawn the knife. He would have cried out to God, do not disdain this sacrifice. It is not the best I have that I know very well for what is an old man compared with the promise of, with a child of promise, but it is the best I can give you. Let Isaac never come to know it, that he may take comfort in his youth. He would have thrust the knife into his own breast. So I think Kierkegaard admits, or Johannes de Silencio admits, that this is what the world would want. So he, he understands at some level what would be truly considered ethical to, to most people. That if Abraham was gonna have a sac was gonna make a sacrifice, he should not murder his son. He should sacrifice himself. Why didn't I highlight that? He would have been admired in the world. Okay, so there you go. So there's a difference between what the world admires for this story and what is actually the more needed reading that is the model for how Kierkegaard wants to change society. And his name would not be forgotten, but it is one thing to be admired, another to become a guiding star that rescues the anguished. So I think I'm going to actually stop there. Sorry, I didn't get to do too much, but I just want to make sure I'm still within the hour. That's really interesting, I think, though. How, how does Abraham sacrifice, willing, being willing to sacrifice his own son and, be, and have his joy not be shaken, rescue the anguished? Who are the anguished? So I don't know. Okay, um, so again, I just want to apologize for any thing that I need to apologize for. <laughs> um, I, I want to apologize for my honesty. So, you know, we're hoping that we're going to grow. And as we read this, it'll make more and more sense. And we can, because really, like, what is that? No, I don't know. Um, I was just thinking of like, what is that description of when we, you know, Whitehead said something like this that I'm thinking. Oh, okay, so sorry. Um, I wish I had that book. He said something like, 
when there is sheer contempt there is also blindness and i believe that i believe that my what i'm calling horror for this sort of story and the reading that is being promoted a very a very superficial response and one that i'm not proud of and one that indicates that i am blind to how I should actually be looking at this. I think it's such a trigger because I grew up very religious and it's hard for me to not express when certain elements of theology are not going to be actually healthy in practice. So that's, that's kind of a struggle that I have you know so it's and I have to find a way to detach from the personal but when theology is in philosophy it doesn't let me do that I would actually be also interested in reading um, other philosophers and how they have read Kierkegaard especially philosophers and commentators who who lived, you know, close to the publication of this. Just to kind of understand, you know, the the potential difference. But that's what I wanted to look at Dr. Devorah Schoenfeld's article because it did show at least maybe not readers of Kierkegaard, but it sh- it you know, presented various perspectives. And I I do appreciate that there's a range of perspectives and there's like, you you know, Johannes de Silencio is not the first person to struggle with this story, right? So, So I don't know if that's really a helpful thing to do, but it's just, it's just me going down a rabbit hole. So thanks so much if you stayed with me and I'm certainly happy to hear your response of any kind and even any direction for myself as I'm you know taking this week to kind of go through this again and see if I can approach it differently I'm sure that my talk with Dr. Amber Bowen will be very revealing and 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 that will will help me and just you know God save all the people that struggle with this story.